You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. Craig Melvin is the co-host on the third hour of NBC's Today Show, an anchor on MSNBC Live, and a host of Dateline. He joins the Post to discuss his new book, Pops, Learning to Be a Son and a Father. Let's listen. Good afternoon. I'm Jonathan Capehart, opinion writer for The Washington Post. Welcome to Washington Post Live. You're about to meet one of my favorite people on the planet and certainly one of my favorite people in the business. And if today's guest looks familiar, that's because you know him as the co-host of NBC's Today Show, anchor at MSNBC, and a host of Dateline. What you don't know is that the proud son of South Carolina spent the pandemic penning a new book about his complicated relationship with his father entitled Pops, Learning to Be a Son and a Father. Joining me now, you just saw him, is the author, the anchor, also friend and colleague, Craig Melvin. Craig, welcome to Washington Post Live. I am so happy to see you, Mr. Capehart. Always good to spend time with you. And and thank you and and the folks at the Washington Post for having me. Certainly. before, before we talk about your book, I want to talk about something that's happening right out of camera range, but I can see it right there. It's the President of the United States speaking from the East Room on MSNBC right now, talking about how he's about to sign into law a, a bill that would make Juneteenth a federal holiday. Just black man to black man. What do you make of that? It's uh, it's remarkable. Uh, you talk about a long time coming. And here's the thing, Jonathan. I, I I'll, admittedly, I was surprised uh, that it passed the upper chamber unanimously. Uh, right. Not a single objection in the Senate. I mean, there are a few folks in the in the House uh, who who declined to it a federal holiday. But yeah, we haven't had a federal holiday, and and you'll probably know this better than I will. I believe it's been 40 years. Uh, since since the last federal holiday was established in this country, so it's um, it's it is it is fitting that it's happening at, at this time, I think, in our country. So, here, here. Yeah, it, I mean, it truly is um, amazing. Also, given, I mean, one, yes, the fact that it passed the Senate unanimously. I had to blink three times and then reread the the story just to make sure I was getting it right because that's not where I expected that to happen. Also, I didn't even know that this was on the radar, but given what we've been through um, yeah. since the murder of George Floyd that put a real a highlight on you know just this country's fraught history, fraught history with race, and also what we're going through right now in terms of the complaints about critical race theory. It's amazing that we're about to get a federal holiday that some school districts won't be able to teach. Yeah, you know, not to, you know, I know, I, I, I know not to believe in the point here, but with regards to critical race theory, um, I, I still maintain that a lot of folks who are opposed to it uh, don't really understand the concept at all either. Right, um, right. And, and that's, I think that's, that's more problematic than being opposed to it. Um, and, you know, I think it's, it's also worth noting that that, that, um, that particular movement in this country, if you want to call it that, it's not a grassroots movement. If, if folks, in fact, uh, we had some reporting earlier this week, um, the, it, this is a movement that, that is being uh, funded by large groups. It is being uh, promoted uh, by and large by, by large groups. 
Uh, and I, I think folks should should probably do a bit more research on critical race theory and, and who's behind a lot of the legislation uh, before they come out and, and say they're, you know, adamantly opposed to it. And just so you know, as we're speaking right now, the president of the United States has just sat down at the table and has picked up the pen and is now literally signing it into law. So, um, Craig, you're a newsman, you're a television newsman. How did you get your start in the business? Well, you know what? It's it's. I was watching TV um, on um, a weekday afternoon, probably actually around this time because I was just getting out. Of, I was getting out of school. I was in the, at Columbia High School, and they were advertising the local TV station, the NBC affiliate, of course, a WIS television. Um, they were looking for a high school reporter. They were going to call uh, these high school reporters our generation reporters, and they were going to work with a producer in the newsroom. And they were going to to focus on producing stories that would be of particular interest to young people. This was their attempt to try and reach a younger, hipper audience. And so I, I did stories on, uh, I, they would do stories on teens and SAT preparation or teens and seatbelt safety, teens and sex and, you know, teens and teens and whatever. So I went, I hopped in my dad's car, drove down to, to Richland Fashion Mall and I auditioned and... Um, a couple of weeks later, I started at the local TV station as an Our Generation reporter, got paid 25 bucks a story. I was, oh. at that point, 16 years old. And when you make $25 a story, by the way, fun fact, you don't get taxed because there's not enough oh. to tax. So I was clear 25 bucks every, you know, three months or two months. So I, I did that. And I walked, in, I remember walking into the, into the newsroom uh, vividly on 1111 Bull Street and, and seeing all of the people that I watched on the local news growing up, churning away, writing scripts, working the phones. Um, and I just, I fell in love with the energy of the newsroom, the hustle and bustle. And as I, as I did it more, I loved it more. And I went off to college, studied government. I thought perhaps I would go to law school or grad school for a hot second. And, and fortunately, uh, I thought better of it and took a job at that same local TV station in Columbia, South mm -hmm. Carolina. When I graduated from college, I started as a photographer, shot video. I was a producer for a while. I wasn't very good at either. And, yeah, I heard about uh, that. Station manager, <laughs> uh, the station manager finally, uh, he had some mercy on me and he knew, he knew that I wanted to be a reporter at some point. So he gave me a shot on the morning news back in 2001, 2002. And that was it. That's that's how it started. We'll see how it ends. Well, I mean, the way it's going right now, it's going really well. One of one of the um, places where you you stopped in your career was here in Washington, um, where you met the woman who became your wife, Lindsay Zarniak, who is a sports reporter at WRC. Um, I would love to know like who saw whom, uh, who asked who out. First. I, I asked her out first, um, and I asked her out second, and then a third time, and fourth time. And by the time, I, by the fourth or fifth time, she finally surrendered, and she was like, "Fine, I'll go out with you." Um, but it's funny because you know, when I started in August of 2008, she was in Beijing covering the Olympics, and so we had a fill-in uh, sportscaster for the. I used to do the weekends there, so we we had a fill-in guy. Um, and so every weekend for the first three or four, he was there. 
I knew she worked there, obviously, but I didn't know when she was coming back from the Olympics. And one Saturday, um, we're on set, and I'm talking to our weather guy, a guy named Steve Villanueva, and we're just kind of shooting the breeze in a commercial break. And you do a lot of TV now. You you know, um, you know what you do during commercial breaks. You you should be preparing, but after you prepare, you start to engage in small. I'm I'm engaging in small talk, and the director's in my ear, and at this point, it's like, all right, uh, 30 seconds, Craig, stand by. Stand by uh, for non-TV people. Stand by means stop talking. We're coming back from commercial right. focus. And I just blah, 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 kept talking. And, and I hear the director in my ear counting me down from five, and I turn to the sports guy, and I turn uh, to, to say, hey, and with sports now, and I turned, and at some point she slid in, and I didn't catch her. And I turned, I'm like, oh, hey, welcome back from China. Good to have you. And she said, and she's like, welcome to Channel 4. Nice to meet you. So that's how we met. And she managed to, to pull the, uh, the final check for our rehearsal dinner. But uh, yeah, we met and <laughs> dated for a while, broke up briefly uh, while we still worked together uh, on air, which was a little awkward. And then, uh, fortunately, we we got back together pretty quickly. And since 2011, it's been happily ever after. A couple kids. Uh, right. Yeah. Delano and, Sil and Sybil. Yes. Del and Sibby, um, seven and four. Um, and it's, uh, it's, it has been, uh, Jonathan Capeport, quite the blessing. Mm -hmm. I, know, I know from a source um, who tells me that your first date was at Cafe Atlantico. Oh, wow! Um, or, was that Cafe Atlantico? This source also told me um, that she was the only one who knew who the two of you were, and she gave it. you the best. She gave you the best seat in the house. John on the Cape Boy, That's the first I've, I've heard that. I mean, I, that was our first date, um, and it's a shame that it closed down. But yeah, mm -hmm. oh wow! That, I I still have this sweater upstairs that I that I wore that night, uh, and, and wow, the shirt. Sentimental under there, Craig. You know what's funny about that night? This is you'll get you'll you'll certainly appreciate this. We're at dinner, um, and it's a Saturday, and I look out of the corner of my eye, I'm like, oh, looks like David Axelrod. I think that's David Axelrod. And at this point, she, you know, Lindsay didn't she she could care less who David Axelrod was. Um, but I I'd grown to really appreciate Mr. Axelrod, so I, I decided to get up from my date and go over to David Axelrod and, and introduce myself. And ask him, you know, and he was actually going to meet the press the next day, which was, which was, uh, which was funny. But I remember David Axelrod also being a part of my first date. <laughs> well, I don't know if David's watching, but I know my source is watching, so I'm sure they're going to be thrilled um, to to see your I want reaction. You to Once we're off the air, you tell me who that was. Mm -hmm, maybe. All right, let's talk about let's talk about your book, Craig. Uh, Pops, learning to be a son and a father, and the very first line. Um, just really, it, it took my breath away, and I'm going to read it for, for folks. Your very first line, my father was born in 1950 in a federal prison in West Virginia. That is a heavy burden to carry into life, but he and I never talked about it, not for decades, not until I was 41 when I sat down to write this book. I, I mean, and throughout the book, you talk about all these things that weren't talked about until you until you sat down. Why 
was it the pandemic? Why did you decide that that was the time you needed to confront your father, really? You know, I, I need to unburden myself as well. Um, that was part of it. Uh, I've, I've never done anything in my life more cathartic than this, than, than write this book. I There was a part of me uh, that regretted starting the project shortly after I started it um, because I, I I had to approach this as a journalist, not as, as Lawrence Melvin's son. And so I, I interviewed my father for hours, more than four hours. We've got all the recordings, which is another blessing. My children and their children will be able to hear their grandfather's voice telling his story in his own words. Um, wow. But I, I, I needed... I needed to, to write this to help heal, but I also wanted to write a love letter to my dad. Um, I, I wanted him to know how proud of him I was. I, I wanted to give him his flowers he was alive. And, and when he, Jonathan, when he sobered up in 2018 after rehab, he and I would have conversations about how remarkable his story was, uh, how powerful it was. And after a number of conversations, we both sort of decided, you know what, this this could probably do some good. And we batted around the idea for a while of maybe like just doing a, you know, like a Today Show story maybe. Um, and then after we continued to talk about it and think about it, it it, it became more apparent that um, that it, it it needed to be told in this medium, um, in in book form. I I I don't like sharing my feelings or my private life in general. It's just not who I am as a person. Additionally, I tend to think as a society, we overshare, people just share too much. Um, but I wanted to do some good. And, and I am convinced now more than ever after hearing from, from some people who've read it or started to read it, um, that it's, 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 doing, it's doing a lot of, lot of good. And, and to your point about the pandemic, what really acted as, as, as more of an impetus was when the pandemic hit, I had a lot more free time. So I was able to, to squirrel away uh, to the basement here and, and, and churn it out and do the inter interviews. And it was also cheaper than therapy. Yeah, you said that, you said that in, an in, in, in an interview. Where do I have it? Writing this book was cheaper than therapy. I spent hours interviewing my dad, which was deeply cathartic. His, his response to the book was my chief concern. And as, as you said in this interview, and he said that it was accurate he blessed it. But I mean, you go into your father's addictions, alcohol, gambling. I think in one part at one point he spent thousands of tens of thousands of dollars on video poker. He uh, he worked the I think it was the graveyard shift at a postal facility, but he was also gambling. He was also sometimes blackout drunk at places. He was so absent that either a group of your friends or one of your friends gave him the nickname of the ghost. That's true. It was one so, friend. Mm -hmm. And the other friends picked it up. And that, and it, it, I read, so uh, you also didn't like that, that nickname. No. Talk about that. I, well, I, I didn't like it because it was, it was mean-spirited. Um, and I, it's, it was also one of those things where at that point in my life, I was so resentful and so angry at my father. Um, and I hid that for years, um, or at least tried to. 
And, you know, it's all, it was one of those things, Jonathan, where you can, I can, I can pick it, my, my younger brother or my older brother, but, but you better not. Um, I, mm-hmm. I can, I can call my father names, um, but you better not. And, and I, I felt like back then that, that, that they were uh, poking fun at my, at my father because they were. And, you know, it was one of those things where they called him the ghost. I write about it in the book. They called him the ghost because uh, he was there, but he wasn't really there. And, and so when he would go to Tom's party shop to gamble, um, he would play video poker, which was quite the scourge in South Carolina back in the 80s and 90s. He drove this 1973 Pontiac Le Mans. It was um, bright green. And when kids would take the school bus in the morning sometimes or after school when they were leaving, they would pass Tom's party shop. And if if they saw a green Pontiac in the parking lot, they knew my dad was inside. And so kids would occasionally comment on on ghost sightings. Yeah. I saw I saw the ghost up at Tom's this morning. I saw the ghost up at Tom's this afternoon because it, it was um, it was I think funny to them because they never saw him anywhere else. And like it, it's not like he was at my basketball games or violin recitals or or, or extracurricular activities where parents would be. My dad he, he didn't really do those. So anytime a kid got a glimpse of my dad, it was like oh oh wow oh wow it's Craig's dad. We hadn't seen him since like last November. Um, and it, it did not help uh, that my mother was so omnipresent, uh, if you will. I mean, she, mm-hmm. she really overcompensated, uh, thank God. Uh, but but the, 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 the paradox between the two probably made the sightings of my father um, even you know, more exciting, I guess, for some of my peers. And I want to talk about your your mother Betty Jo Melvin uh, in a moment. And by the way, that that, that green Le Mans also was easily spotted because it had a, a white top. That's right. As, as well. So, um, and I saw a picture of that. That was, that was a clean, that was a clean ride. Um, Here's the thing, Jonathan. You know, seventy three Le Mans. He drove that car for. This is an exaggeration. He drove that car for about forty years. My father hasn't had a car payment since the late 70s. Um, that, was, that was the first and last car my dad ever bought. Wow. But also when he had it, gas was what, 10 cents a, ga- 10 cents a gallon? So he, tra- he, traded, yeah. he traded filling up the tank for, for a car note. Um, before we get to, to your mom, you know, you talk about in your book about you know, mentors and surrogate fathers um, who you sort of subconsciously sought out as a result of your father being there but not being there. Who were some of these folks? Oh, gosh, thank God for them. You know, I, my uncles um, initially filled that void. Uh, my uncle James, who's, who's my, my father's older brother, um, he worked in civil service there in Washington for years at, at the Department of Labor. Um, and my uncle Pop, ironically, his real name's Frank, we called him Pop. I've never, I've never actually figured out why he got that nickname. But anyway, my uncle Frank, um, uncle James, my uncle Jake, my mother's sister's brother. And then I had a bunch of teachers along the way, Jonathan, who really mm-hmm. uh, stepped in to, to fill that void. And then, um, when I graduated, I, I, I picked up professional mentors uh, who really took me under their wing. 
Uh, Jim Vance there in Washington, D.C. Oh, was, yeah. was, was someone who very much became uh, like a father figure. And even now, I mean, Al Roker at the Today Show, okay. you know, early okay. on uh, sort, of, sort of stepped in and he's like my work dad. Um, and it's, you know, it's, it's, it's funny because I think a lot of people, and I didn't realize this until, until I started talking to folks, I think a lot of people have surrogate fathers, people who, oh, yeah. who necessity step in and, and, and fill those gaps. But, but of all of the folks who, who fill the gap, uh, my mother, you know, my mother played the role of mom and dad for a huge swath of my life. And when the gambling was at its worst, she picked up a second job. Um, she was, um, she was the oldest of four, grew up in the projects, would occasionally get evicted from, from one project, would move to the other, uh, move to another. Uh, she was the first in the family to go to college, first in the family to, to get a graduate degree. And she gets, uh, pregnant with me in 1978. Um, I was uh, a pleasant surprise, shall we say. Uh, my parents didn't get married until 1982, but she gets, she gets pregnant with me. And, and all of a sudden, uh, she's got this, at the age of 23, she's got this new baby to help care for. Uh, she moves in with her, her then boyfriend, my father. Um, and, and, and that really sort of started what would become a lifetime of sacrifice uh, for her two children and eventually her mother when my grandmother fell ill and had to move in with our parents. My mom took care of her. She, she, she has spent the better part of her life uh, as a caretaker. And I did not fully appreciate uh, the extent of her sacrifices, uh, Jonathan, until I sat down and started working on this book. My mother yeah. has given up a lot um, for me and my younger brother to, uh, to, to get where we are in this world. You, you had both your parents uh, read the book. As I mentioned before, your father said that it was it was accurate. Um, I, I read in another interview um, that he didn't have any comments, any changes. Your mother, on the other hand, had some feelings. She ab did. She did about this. And she did, and I knew she would um, because that's that's just that's Betty Jo. That's who she is. Um, but I, I I wanted to make sure, as a journalist, you'll appreciate appreciate this. I wanted to make sure that the names are right, the dates are right, that the facts were there. Um, mm -hmm. and, 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 and she did that. And I knew, I knew it was going to be, I knew it was going to be interesting when I gave her the book on like a Monday and I didn't hear from her for several days. And then finally the next week in a conversation, she didn't bring it up. I asked her, you know, Hey, why don't you get a, get a chance to, to thumb through the, the, the draft? She said, yeah, yeah. I said, okay, well, what'd you think? Well, I mean, you know, if that's how y'all remember stuff, I guess that's how y'all remember it. I yeah. said, well, um, yeah, you know, because sometimes moms can be occasionally just a smidge passive aggressive. Um, <laughs> I, said, uh, I said, well, w was it accurate? Well, yeah, I mean, I guess it depends on how you look at things. I guess for you, it was probably accurate. And I guess for your father, he remembers things certain ways, and I remember them other ways. So I, I, I left it alone. I said, well, Mom, if you have specific uh, parts of the book that you think I should take another look at, let me know. Well, Jonathan, I, I, got, I got some notes back because apparently my, my mom thought she was your editor at the Washington Post. 
<laughs> she, Did she use she, red ink? Oh, she used no ink. Like she, she just oh. she sent, and she would send her notes over text. So she would like she would read a part. Oh, and say, but there was there is there is a part of the book that, at her request, I, I did alter um, a portion of it so as not to to burn all of our family's bridges, if if, if that makes sense. I did honor one of, one of her requests, but the other requests I basically I said to her, uh, Mom, the title of the book is Pops, um, and if I write a book about you, rest assured uh, you will be the first to to get editorial approval. Um, okay, so so is part two going to be um, Betty Jo? I'll never is do this again. Is there part two? Never do this again. <laughs> I'll never write a children's book or something at some point. But I, but this was, you know, I mean, you write. You write every day. Like, you know how hard it is mm-hmm. to just, first of all, sit at your computer, focus thoughts, hammer them out. You send it off to someone, they, they send their thoughts back and, and you think their thoughts are meh or you think their thoughts are, are good sometimes and you, so you incorporate that. And, and, and so first of all, you've got the process of writing that's daunting and time consuming. I've got a, a full-time, you know, two or three other jobs. Uh, but on top of that, the emotional toll that it took on me, um, I, I did not, I, I didn't fully appreciate. In fact, I would say I grossly underestimated um, how much of, of 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 an emotional exercise this was going to be. Because you know, like most people, suppress the bad stuff. Like that's what we do. That's that's sort of you know human nature. And I've I've been a, a, a firm believer in therapy for a long time. Um, and and my therapist said it. I think it was last year, maybe the year before, but that an exercise like this. Uh, would do a whole lot um, to help exercise some of my own demons. Mm-hmm. She was right; it did. So, so then, Craig, in the process of now that you've written the book, the book is out. Uh, a, a lot of a lot of family laundry is out there for everyone to see. I'm wondering. What have you learned about fatherhood and what have you learned about yourself being a father now to two kids? I've, I've learned um, during the course of, of, of the research for the book, primarily conversations with my dad, and also through working on some of the stories for the Today Show for my series, Dad's Got This, meeting other dads from around the country, we're all doing the best that we can. We're, we're doing the best that we can with the tools that, that, that we've been given. And for the better part of my life, Jonathan Capehart, I, I couldn't understand why my dad couldn't be more like, like Cliff Huxtable. Mm-hmm. Cliff Huxtable. I, I couldn't understand why my dad was so detached from our family, from society at large, why drinking was his favorite hobby, uh, why he didn't you know, hug me or why didn't tell me he loved me. I couldn't figure any of that out until I started working on this and talking to my dad. My dad, in addition to being born in a federal uh, prison, he didn't know who his father was until he was almost a teenager. In the book, I write about asking my dad what's the most money he ever wasted. And without missing a beat, my dad said, 
said something like, you know, fifteen hundred dollars in nineteen eighty six. I said, well, what what was what'd you spend that on? He's like, that's how much I had to pay to put my father in the ground after he died, because no one else would. Um, and in that moment, I realized that for me to expect my father to be the kind of dad I wanted him to be, that was an unrealistic expectation. You can't you can't be what what you can't see. And my my dad, in addition to not knowing who his dad was, he didn't he wasn't surrounded by other uh, positive uh, male role models in in the 1950s in in South Carolina. He, he just didn't have them. So when he became a dad, uh, again accidentally, um, not begrudgingly, but accidentally, um, when when he became a dad, he didn't know what he was doing. He wasn't reading parents' magazines or, or books on how to be a great dad. Um, but he did exponentially better than his dad. He stuck around. He worked the third shift to provide for our family. He helped get us to the middle class. So in his eyes, he was a hell of a dad. Uh, so I, as I was working on this book and as I've gotten older, I've, I've come to understand um, that when we, when we know better, we do better. And we know a lot better now. Um, and so... I was hard on my dad for a long time, long time, um, externally and internally. Mm -hmm. And, and, and part of, of, of what's come of this book for me, it's a release. I have, I've, I've really, I have forgiven my father in full for all of it. Forgave him years ago, but put pen to paper in part to make sure he understood the depths of that forgiveness. And I didn't forgive him. I didn't forgive him for him. I, I, I forgave him for me, by and large. It's, it, 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 it's too much to carry around. So, Craig, um, final, final question, and that is this. You just said before that um, you recorded all of the interviews w with your father. Um, you're saving them so that um, your two kids can listen to them and get a fuller view of their of their grandfather, um, I saw in another interview you you, you watch your father um, play with his grandchildren, um, and you're like, who is this guy? Um, are you are you concerned that the grandfather that they know, who they interact with now, that the image of him will be are sullied in some way when they sit down and listen to those tapes when they're when they're older. No, no, I'm not. In, in fact, um, that was part of the another part of the reason that I recorded the, the conversations and, and made copies and wrote this book. I want my my kids and their kids and their kids. I want them to know their grandfather, warts and all. Uh, it, it's 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 important that we get the whole picture. Of, of, of the folks that came before us. And I, I, and I said this to my dad while I was working on the book. I, I wish, I wish I had known as a teenager that my grandmother did hard time. I wish I knew that she was running liquor and numbers in the 40s. I mean, that would have been a, that would have been a hell of a short story or an essay or a screenplay. Or, and I was never able to talk about it with her because it was such a family secret. You did not, you didn't talk about those things back then. You don't talk about them now, but certainly back then it was it was mm -hmm. totally off limits. 
Um, and he never talked to her about it. Like it was that what was that's that was one of the things that was most baffling. My father was a grown man and he knew he knew he was born in prison. He knew that, that his mother had served served time. He never asked her about it, never talked to her about it, never came up. And 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 I pressed him on this. And it wasn't it wasn't as even it was it wasn't as even that was something that was considered. He never even thought about it. It was it was so unspoken. So I know I want my but I Jonathan, I think there's value in 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 people knowing the whole story. Not just mm -hmm. not just but my kids need to know that just because you start here doesn't mean you have to finish here. That everyone is capable of of changing their lives. Or, you know, my dad's in his late 60s and he decides over the course of six weeks to never take a sip of alcohol. And then a couple of years after that, Jonathan K. Park, last November, he and my mom both end up getting hospitalized. We think it's COVID. It's, it's fortunately, as odd as that may sound, it's bacterial pneumonia. They're in the hospital for five days. Doctor comes in, says, Mr. Melvin, um, I, I understand that uh, you, you drank for a long time and I know you've given up drinking. Let's talk about your smoking. How much do you smoke? And my dad um, he never lies. He said, well, more than I should, probably about a pack a day. And Doc, Doc says, well, you, you've got some issues with your lungs. You're going to have to stop the smoking, okay? My dad said, okay. Hadn't smoked a cigarette since. Hadn't smoked a and cigarette that was since. That. Was that? He has willpower that, uh, that, that you, you and I can't possibly fathom. So um, I enjoyed this. You know, I forget sometimes because you're a friend and a colleague, you're very good at this. You're very, you're very. <laughs> not, it's, well, thank it's you. Not, it's, well, thank you. Thank you very much, Craig Melvin. That means a, a, a lot coming from you. And even though I am. 12 years older than you are. Um, I do consider you, yes, I am, 12 years older than you. Um, uh, I do consider you like uh, a younger big brother. Um, and so this has been a thrill. We've actually gone five minutes over. That's how much wow. fun this is. That's how much fun this has been. But Craig Melvin, uh, thank you so much for, uh, uh, for coming to Washington Post Live. Congratulations on the book. Thank you, Mr. Capehart. Congrats on all of your success. Uh, and thanks again to the Washington Post. And all of the, I guess people are watching this or streaming this. Yes. Or however people are viewing this, uh, thank you for watching as well. And I hope you enjoy the book. And the name of the book is, where, not, where is it? Oh, here it is. Pops, Learning to Be a Son and a Father. Craig Melvin, again, thank you very much for coming to Washington Post Live. Thank you. And as always, thank you for tuning in and hanging in there for this uh, overtime edition of Washington Post Live. Join me tomorrow morning at 9 a.m. Eastern for First Look. Then I'll be back at noon for another installment of our Race in America series with Pulitzer Prize winning historian Annette Gordon-Reed about her new book on Juneteenth. Uh, and at 2 p.m. And we'll have a Race in America doubleheader with Cecilia Rouse, chair of the White House Council of Economic Advisors, and then John W. Rogers, co-CEO of Ariel Investments. Until then, I'm Jonathan Capehart, opinion writer for The Washington Post. Thank you very much for tuning into Washington Post Live. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.